In today's episode, we speak with Colleen Metalista and Duncan Campbell with the DER Task Force podcast. The DER Task Force is a community of distributed energy resource enthusiasts. They organize a meetup every month with networking and a member presentation about something cool they've been working on or thinking about. With COVID, they brought these meetings online and record a podcast episode where they try to summarize the presentation and recreate the dialogue that transpired during the meetup. In this episode of Grid Connections, we discuss everything from the COVID impacts on the grid to the blackouts in Texas and the future of microgrids. Uh, thanks everyone who's listening today. I'm joined by Colleen Metalitza and Duncan Campbell, both co-hosts of the DER Task Force, a great podcast to discover and I think a lot of listeners would also be interested in. Um, pleasure to be spoken with both of you today. You too, Chase. Yeah, Chase, really looking forward to this. And could you share maybe a little bit about each of yourselves and what you do in the space? And then we'll go into the formation of the podcast. Sounds good. Um, so I currently work at Con Edison. I'm the EV program manager helping to build out charging infrastructure across New York City and Westchester. Uh, I will give the classic utility caveat that everything I say today is my own opinion and not that of my company. I've been in the clean energy and energy efficiency space across a variety of consulting, nonprofits, and research firms for the past decade. So really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah. And yeah, my name is Duncan. Um, I work at a company called Scale Microgrid Solutions. We, we build microgrids for commercial and industrial facilities. Uh, what I do there is lead our project analysis team where I'm, uh, we're figuring out, you know, what, what makes sense for a project, what battery, how much solar, what are the economics, all, all that kind of analytical stuff. Um, and yeah, likewise, I've been kind of working in distributed energy for, I think, six or seven years now. Um, and it's, it's kind of all I do. <laughs> so yeah, excited <laughs> to be here and talk about it. Well, great. And I, I think uh, the best way to kind of kick this off is obviously we are on a podcast right now and we're in this kind of post-meeting world uh, where this is how a lot of people have to communicate. And it is great to be speaking with both of you, uh, both being on the East Coast out of New York. But I, I think it's really great to hear how your podcast kind of started. So can you share with how it went from being kind of a real world meetup event and now it's kind of evolved into this uh, new format? Yeah, sure. H happy to get into that. So yeah, our, our podcast really is a community. The podcast just has sort of ended up being a part of it. Um, before COVID, it originated as what was called the New York City DERs meetup. Um, and basically the idea there was right. Um, also known as DG Beers. Yeah, DG Beers was actually the, <laughs> the OG. The like 30 person Twitter DM that it originally was. Um, but yeah, uh, the, the idea was, you know, basically I found myself and I think Colleen and the other co-host who's not here, James, we all found ourselves kind of ha like meeting up with random people who we like met on Twitter or LinkedIn to talk about this stuff. You know, always, I think, with a view toward like what's coming, like what's evolving, you know, the sort of more interesting topics. Um, and I remember I once uh, met up with uh, this, this guy named Kyle. And as we were sort of leaving the bar we were hanging out at, he said, you know, like, where can I find more of you? Like, where, where's everybody else talking about this? And that kind of was like the light bulb moment. We were like, why don't we just all get together in a room? Uh, that would make more sense, right? And so we started the, yeah, the New York City DERs meetup. And we did that for 
I don't know, a year ish, something like that. I, it, wow. It's been that long, maybe like eight months. Um, then COVID happened. Uh, and we kind of just snoozed on it for like a month or two, not sure of what form it was going to take. Um, and then we sort of relaunched it um, in a few ways. One, we rebranded because uh, we wanted to be sort of more like of a sort of internet presence and less uh, geographically specific since that just doesn't matter in this time. Um, so we rebranded as the DER task force, DER standing for distributed energy resources. Um, and we started making our meetups virtual. So once a month, we, we get together, uh, usually on the first or second Wednesday of the month, uh, we bring in an expert, uh, somebody who's doing something cool, um, whether they're in the community or, or external to it. Um, and we let them kind of talk about what they're doing, maybe give a brief presentation, and then we sort of open it up. And the idea, right, is we can bring really smart, interesting people into these sort of private Zoom events. We can give, you know, kind of really unique access to our community to these these sort of leading thinkers. And uh, recently, too, we're taking the the first you know twenty minutes or so as a chance to highlight some someone in the community and what they're doing. Um, so kind of like a you know like at a show, there's the opener and the main event. That, that's what we're trying to do. Um, but then also, right, we sort of realized not everybody can tune in at like 7 p.m. Eastern on a Wednesday. Um, so we started the podcast to try to, you know, take all that discourse that happened and kind of boil it down into into something that uh, folks can listen to whenever it works for them. Um, since then, it's kind of evolved into other stuff, too. So we have a, we have a Slack that's pretty active and interesting. There's, I don't know, 300, 400 people in there. Uh, sharing ideas, like looking to hire people, um, you know, looking for somebody to collaborate on a project, whatever it might be. Um, uh, and then, you know, we've, we've also started recording all these meetups and putting on them on YouTube. So, so people can kind of participate that way as well. So yeah, that's the, uh, the kind of genesis of the DER task force and, and where we are today. That, that's great to hear. And I, I think the just organicness of it, of it starting with kind of just being with beers and then evolving into a much larger thing is a kind of a common thread I've known in a lot of similar communities. Uh, and even with some of the groups I joined when I was in the Bay Area, down San Francisco, and also um, living in Portland for a long time. So it's not an unheard of uh, st background story, but I, I think where, uh, where you guys are really approaching it from and the topics you cover have been really great. Uh, because it is succinct, entertaining, but also pretty informational. That with a lot of people kind of in this space, sometimes you don't always kind of get to scratch to like, you kind of talk very, uh, when you're talking with other people in space, it's usually kind of high level. Whereas what I really enjoy about the podcast is it is, it gets into some pretty deep topics and they're amusing conversations, but you really start to peel back the DR onion, if you will. With yeah. this guy, Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, no, I was just gonna say, like, I appreciate you saying that. I think what's funny is I think when we first started, we're like, this is going to be for people who like are new to the industry. And we just can't keep away from getting wonky on things. <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, among that, like, are, what are some of the things that kind of surprised you or stood out that maybe you weren't expecting with uh, kind of like with the addition of the Slack group or what these conversations have led to? Yeah, super interesting question. I mean, I think with the Slack group and, and the moving digitally, 
one of the really cool things that the community did was come together to provide comments on a rape proceeding in Connecticut. Um, so actually there was, you know, something on, on like storage and microgrids and a whole bunch of different topics. And we decided to, you know, sort of get people together and co-write these comments and the community sort Get of wonky with it. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is what the community really is focused on, right. Is like bringing really smart people in a room who can talk about things. I've learned so much around other areas of the industry that I don't work in um, from having access to these people. But yeah, it's, I mean, it started off because it was fun and we're doing it because it's still fun. And I think to your point, uh, you know, when I've been out to the West coast and I like go to, you know, parties back when parties were a thing, I feel like half the people you'd meet just happen to work in energy that doesn't happen as much in New York. So I think when we started it too, it was like, it is hard to find energy people in New York. Um, and now that we're, you know, global community, it's different, but. Well, and that's great to hear. And that, that is kind of interesting how it started with a small area and it's just expanded. And I mean, that's how I came across. It was actually talking to some other people who uh, were on the West coast and they had mentioned they had recently came across and then now I'm talking with you. Um, what, one obviously, thing just, one oh, yeah. thing I just throw in there about that uh, that regulatory comment we put together is like what I think is kind of interesting about it is, you know, we're not, of course, we're not a we're not a corporation with a stake in in that process, um, and nor are we sponsored by any corporation. So it's it's really this kind of like open source democratic thing that happened, and it was pretty cool. Like it, for like three weeks, like twice a week, a subgroup got on a Zoom and just like argued until we came up with what we felt was like a good comment for how this storage program should work in Connecticut. Um, and then generally- that, That's great to hear. I'd also oh, just continue. throw out like the other cool outcome of having to transition, you know, post COVID was uh, just like the breadth of geographical participation we get now is awesome. Uh, so like we did this little fundraiser where we sold these sweatshirts that say microgrids are dope on them. And we sold a bunch in the US, but like we also sold sent one to like the northernmost tip of Canada. We sent one to South Africa. Like it's 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 been pretty cool to like get people from all over the place involved. And it turns out like you kind of learn a lot by having like different, there's, there's like different DER challenges all over the place. There's, there's this one guy who always joins, who's in a pretty rural area of Canada. And so for him, like microgrids are about like energy access and reliability. Um, there's this guy I mentioned in South Africa who joins and like, for him, it's about like, we have a kind of corrupt utility that's like pure coal. Right. And then for us in New York, it's like a wholly different thing, which is like, no, like things are pretty good here. And we're just like trying to tweak around the edges and do cool stuff. So it's, I don't know, that has been really, really awesome to have it not be a New York centric group. Um, and I think it'll be interesting if post COVID ever happens, uh, how we, you know, get the benefits of, you know, in-person hangs, like get beers back. Uh, but uh, also, you know, keep, keep this like really cool thing that's come out of this, which is just like a ton of different perspectives. I think that's a great point because there's, there's two things to kind of unpack there. One is what you said near the end there about a DR is kind of different to everyone. And I think uh, for myself, who's kind of grew up traditionally more rural area, but then lived in the big city and then kind of back in a more rural uh, sports town uh, or kind of outdoor sports town. 
it means a whole different thing out here where it's kind of like grid stability and just having that freedom to kind of just not have to worry about it. And so I, I would love to kind of hear what you, you kind of touched upon it a little bit, but hear uh, what what that kind of means for both of you in New York, how you approach DRs and what you're really trying to look for and kind of get out of um, this evolution in the space. Totally. So I think, you know, I'll come at it from, from the, I think like the grid optimization perspective. Um, I think there's also a really big uh, resilience component, but I'll maybe leave that for Duncan. <laughs> That's really his wheelhouse. But for, I mean, for me, I think where you are is right. It is going to be super dependent. And what we have in, in New York city, for example, is a lot of um, congestion of like getting clean power from upstate to downstate. Um, and so one solution is building more transmission, which is definitely on the table and it's probably warranted and needed. But I think other solutions is, you know, how do you better um, place DERs within a constrained grid in order to have relief um, where you need it and when you need it? And how could you offset, um, you know, peakers? There's some really interesting projects happening um, with an existing peaker plant and that's trying to convert to storage in New York City. And so for me, it's like, can you reduce local pollution through DERs? Can you better optimize the grid so you don't have to build as much new transmission lines in to a system? And then from my perspective too, like if you then, if those DERs are including systems that include backup storage, how can you, when there are grid outages also improve people's, like to me, that's sort of like an added benefit on top of everything. But I think there is so, we're going to be adding so much load to the grid in the future um, through electrification that being able to like optimize and be really flexible is going to be really important to not having to overbuild generation systems. Uh, and I personally think that like, I would like to keep as much, like, I think solar and wind are wonderful. I personally think wind is really beautiful, but like, I don't want us to have windmills everywhere. And so I think we need to be really smart about like how we build and design systems so that we're efficient. I, I want to just highlight yeah. something you said, Colleen, that I think is so crazy. Like in New York, everything's a DER, right? You could be talking <laughs> about replacing a 100 megawatt peaker plant with a battery. That's a DER. It's like right in the middle of the city connected to the distribution grid. It's kind of crazy. Like New York is the craziest grid in the country. And it's really yeah. interesting because of that, especially being transmission constrained and all of that. Um, I mean, my answer would be like, I, <laughs> I live in New York, but I actually don't do most of my projects here. Um, most of my work lately is in California, which is like very, very different, you know, faces different challenges. So much of what we do is based on public safety power shutoffs lately and, you know, helping people have power when, you know, the, the larger system is in a tough spot and, and has to shut down to prevent, you know, larger disasters. Um, so I don't know, I, I found that interesting. I've been doing that for the last few years, whereas previously I did all my work in like super dense urban areas like New York City. Um, so I don't know, it's been cool, cool to kind of see the contrast there. Well, and kind of unpacking that you mentioned, you're doing a lot on the West Coast. Like, is this, um, if you're okay with kind of sharing, are you, are you coming across a lot of these through people reaching out to you or how are these projects kind of, 
coming across your radar for your company and uh, or being based in New York. Totally. Yeah. So we, we have a, a, an office in California. I, I work on a lot of these projects despite living here, but you know, so we have people there and you know, they're, they're kind of working within that market. I mean, but how this is really happening, right. Is, you know, people are losing power a lot. And when that happens, they go out and try to find solutions, right? Like it's, it's, we use this word a lot on our podcast, like it's emergent, right? People just do whatever they can figure out. Um, and what you'll find in California is the past few years have been the best years for Generac salespeople of their lives, right? They're all driving new trucks, uh, you know, maybe moving into new houses, right? Like, so that's sort of the main thing that's happening is people are just buying diesel backup generators. Um, what we're trying to do is kind of inject ourselves into that process and say, you could do that, or you could buy this system that can give you all the same backup benefits, but actually be good for you and be good for the grid, the 99% of other hours of the year. So, so that's kind of the way we're, we're approaching it. Um, in addition to though, just, there's a lot of really cool activity in California. Like there's a bunch of schools that are installing solar plus storage. There's, there's all sorts of like interesting stuff uh, happening there that, you know, we sort of bump elbows with as well. I'd be curious, kind of just given your exposure kind of across the country better, would you say the pilots on the West Coast are kind of more common and maybe a little more forward thinking or is it pretty, pretty universal across the U.S. right now? Um, definitely not universal. However, um, I mean, both New York and California have really cool stuff going on, um, probably more so than anywhere else in the U.S. Um, one thing the California market has going for it, right, is just like broadly power is expensive. So you can have a bit more fun with your solutions, right, because the economics are a little easier to make work. Um, and there's some generous incentives there, too. Um, you know, but at the same time, you could say that. So there's lots of cool solar plus storage projects happening in California. At the same time, there's things happening in New York that are really unique that aren't happening there. New York's community solar program and the whole VDER, you know, value of distributed energy uh, rates um, are super innovative and have like sparked a, a big market here, both New York City, but upstate as well. Um, so I think it's just different. I'd say, you know, there's, there's sort of like two different approaches. I think New York's trying to take the like, you know, think about this kind of from like a fundamental engineering and economics perspective and like build up this market and California is a bit more forceful and tends to kind of like go top down and just like make stuff happen. Um, and I don't know, both, both produce pretty interesting results. With that, uh, I mean, especially when you're talking about backup for California, obviously the forest fires and forest blackouts are becoming a thing, uh, unfortunately, more commonly on the West Coast. I mean, with that, uh, I guess let's rewind the clock. I feel like there's just been so much that's happened in the space in the last 18 months. So let's start with probably the one that most that's been universal would be the COVID side of stuff. How have, I mean, I, I think a big thing we saw locally, at least in Oregon, I love the Northwest grid, and I'm sure it's probably the case for most of the country, was just the power shift of the load kind of becoming a little, the, the bell kind of flattening a bit, where it's just stretched out through the day, and you're not seeing this high peak near the end of the day, because no one's leaving to go to their house, they're just working from home. 
is that pretty common to what you were seeing? I know it's kind of started to change as people go back more and more to the office, but were there any interesting kind of unique trends that you've seen on your side of the country or just in your day-to-day uh, day -day of what both you work on? Yeah, so I think a lot of it was like really the, there was definitely right, like some shifts went, uh, as buildings. I think especially not quite immediately because buildings use a lot of their load kind of regardless of how many people are in them, if there's like any people in them. <laughs> um, but there was a shift, right, obviously from areas that were super workplace oriented towards more residential spaces. And where I think that gets more interesting for a lot of uh, grid operators is like in the summer when all of a sudden you're dealing with like air conditioning load in spaces that like maybe you didn't really have it before, right? Like people were, weren't home and so their air conditioner wasn't home on um <laughs> and now you have all these people moving back like being back home and like being in their home all day and they're like hot and so they're running things um you know i know like very anecdotally for me personally like my my usage has gone up like 30 to 50 percent each month versus the prior year um because i was really good about turning things off and like didn't do things and i was i'm a relatively social person so like me coming you know turning things off during the day might mean that it's not coming on until like 9 p.m. at night or and I, I it's been crazy right it's been like this huge increase in costs for me <laughs> that I was not anticipating um is that I a write-off can you write that off no because um we don't technically work from like working from home you it's like a designation by your company if yeah. you're like at your home, if you're a home office, I did look into this. I spent a lot of we time gotta trying to figure that. out in the post -COVID if I could get, world. <laughs> <laughs> I could get tax reductions. Um, Sorry, go well, that's, that sounds like the next thing you need to get the uh, Slack team to get around together on. I'm sure a lot of them are working from home too. Right. But no, I, so I think there is, I mean, I think for me, one of the questions is like, almost like what will be the, what, like there were a lot of, I think, short-term trends, like what are the long-term trends of, COVID going to be in terms of like how how we work right like if we aren't going back to these office buildings like will they convert to other things will they figure out how to better manage <laughs> some of the like usage and load over time and like how you know are you know is I don't I'm not a, a believer in the New York City is dying um fan that's been flamed <laughs> but a lot of people are, are moving to the suburbs and like does does that have meaningful change I don't think it will in the long run but I do think you could see um you know grids are managed super locally right there's feeder level issues there's network level issues and I think you will see impacts from that I think it's hard to like tell what that will shake out over the next couple years but it's something that is forcing grid planning groups to like really have to like think at a very granular level how their forecasts might need to change because when you're talking about substation upgrades like it matters if people are in like one borough or another i i was just talking to this co-generation developer in new york city he's like been around for a long time been doing this in multifamily buildings for a long, long time and like the way he put this i thought was so interesting he remarked on the same thing right that you know, lots of people are working from home and, you know, increases power needs and, and like the shape of power needs. 
Uh, but the way he said it is basically, you know, we now believe there is commercial load embedded in multifamily buildings. Um, mm. And that changes a lot, actually, right? Because a lot of people use like rules of thumb to think about like how different buildings use energy. Utilities use generic load profiles to like bill reps, right? Like, uh, and, and, you know, his point was just like moving forward, there is commercial load inside of multifamily buildings. Like, that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, when you start I, thinking about like neat. line extensions and all sorts of stuff, like how I mean, there, there's there's obviously kind of clear delineations, but you're right, it starts kind of making the waters a little more murkier. Where where do you see that kind of in the short term going? Or as far as like, is there are you seeing that with those discussions, how they're looking to try and better incorporate that? Is do they have any sorts of numbers that they can tie to that, or is it to be determined? I couldn't tell you. <laughs> I'm not sure. Colleen might know better than I. But yeah, I no, I I don't have a good sense of how it's how it's being incorporated. I I have a feeling that you know this year has been so turbulent and there's so many unknowns that I I think right now it's kind of like a wait and see and like keep it keep or keep closer tabs on it, right? I think for a lot of a lot of places because ultimately like you investment decisions aren't made overnight (laughs) um by by planners or people and so like figuring that out will will take time um but it's certainly something to i think something that will be really interesting to watch um i I and i think that's a great oh sorry oh no go for it i was just gonna say i think that's a great point it just seems like a lot of this will be uh It'll be interesting to see how much of it's short term, but what were you going to add, Duncan? I was just going to say, like, I agree investment decisions aren't made overnight, but at the same time, like, right before COVID hit, I was developing, for example, a portfolio of hotel projects. Like, mm. those fell off a cliff. Like, and it's not just short term, right? Like, I don't know, let's, let's hope that in the summer, COVID's like kind of over. Um, that doesn't mean those hotels are credit worthy anymore. Um, so I, I do think this could have like interesting long-term impacts that aren't necessarily the obvious ones. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think there's stuff like that and, you know, you layer in, yeah, I think, you know, a lot of people will move back to cities, but probably not all of them. It will probably have accelerated some trend. A lot of people will go back to the office, but probably not all of them. And so th- I think there'll be some, some long-term changes we see out of this um, that, I mean, just, I don't know, energy is related to everything, right? So a change in pretty much anything is going to have an effect on what we do. Mm-hmm. So if we're talking about this chronologically, we've discussed COVID. Now we kind of get to the forest fires of the kind of late summer and fall. Where, I mean, I lived in pretty much, I experienced pretty much the heart of it. You could not see more than 100 yards and it just looked like hell on earth. It was the craziest and most unfortunate thing, but I think it's kind of going to be a more common occurrence. What are either of you seeing, um, I guess, especially with the projects you're working on, Duncan, around this interest in battery backup? Um, Because I I think there's at least the discussions I've seen, people have talked about for a long time, we're finally starting to see some actual decent pilot projects actually turn into large commercial installations and start to get momentum around that. But I just feel like since that event, at least the discussions I've been in, it's no longer kind of a 
quasi pilot science experiment thing. It's like, oh, we have to do this and we have to figure it out now because of these increased enrolling blackouts and any way we can kind of help move to more uh, a more stable grid. Yeah, I mean, th this is in until last week, wildfires and public safety power shutoffs were like the craziest thing in energy, right? Right. Um, and our company's been following this for a while because this this really started back in like 2017, I want to say that was, I mean, public safety power shutoffs have been a thing for a while. They've been used, but just very sparingly. Um, but with the increased frequency of wildfires in California being, you know, some of them sparked by utility, downed utility lines, um, you know, this has become in, in the 2017, 2018 season, uh, the, you know, utilities talked about this and said, we're going to have to start doing this more. And like, I want to be clear, like, we believe them, like, they're right. <laughs> like, there's a lot of folks who are saying, no, you're just not doing your job. Blah, blah. No, they're, they're, they're protecting the state from being burned down. Um, of course, an impact of that, though, is people lose power more often. Um, and we tried to get out in front of this. Prior to this, we weren't pursuing any projects in California, because it was just a very different market than what we were used to. We were kind of doing our own thing here on the East Coast. Um, but since then, you know, late 2017 into 2018, we've we've been really um, focusing a ton of our attention there. Um, and like, scarily enough, it sort of just keeps getting worse each year, right? Um, and I don't actually have all the latest statistics like in my head at this moment, but the I think it was the very first DER task force presentation. I was, was, I was just going to say that. Um, <laughs> It's so our, our OG presentation. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, I should say New York NYC DERS meetup. Um, uh, and uh, at the time, like the crazy stat was the year before, you know, largest wildfire season, most destruction of property, most deaths, you know, all records. Next year, most fire, more, most destruction, most property damage, most deaths. So it, it's as if it keeps sort of one-upping itself. Um, and yeah, I think like the, after the first year, the question was like, is this the new normal? Like, are people going to like change behaviors and find new solutions? Uh, after the second year, it was kind of like, Ooh, this is looking like it's the new normal. And after the third year, um, you know, people are figuring this out. Um, like I mentioned earlier in all variety of ways, not all ways that are great for the rest of our energy goals. Um, like, again, I, I always have to stress this diesel backup generators are the number one solution to this that's happening right now. Um, so finding out how to, you know, make that better is, uh, you know, a big challenge, but like people are doing it. And it's it's pretty cool. Like, you know, for the past six or seven years, you know, there have been all these RFPs for like school districts in California that want to get solar just because the economics makes sense. Um, all of them are including storage now, or at least all the ones I've seen. Um, and the consultants running those RFPs are smart. They understand this stuff and like they're doing detailed analysis to figure out what makes sense. Uh, and then, you know, sort of bringing the hammer to people like me who are trying to reply to these RFPs, right? And like, really, they know what they're doing. Um, and it's, it's not because they went to battery school or something. It's because like they had to figure it out, right? Um, so I, I think, yeah, what's happening in California now because of this is like, it's not just sort of the, immediate impact of just like, yeah, more batteries are being deployed. While that is true, it's like 
it is forcing the industry to move a lot faster than was kind of the business as usual path of like, yeah, batteries are getting cheaper. We can start to consider them, you know, now, like the, the, the biggest economy in the U S and one of the biggest ones in the world has spun up an industry that really gets this stuff and is moving. Um, so that's been my like biggest takeaway from this is just like, whoa, like we can actually like learn and move fast. If there's like something behind us, that's, you know, forcing us to. Yeah. I think that's super, super interesting, Duncan. I think for me, like, you know, so as someone who is very, um, far removed from like the business side of this and also has been like terrified of living in California my whole life because I was scared of earthquakes. And then like the fire started happening as like, I hear it's great. I love my friends who live there, but oh my goodness, natural disasters are like on my biggest list of fears, just like in general, and like the Northeast, like only blizzards or that's like the only thing I can handle. Um, but no, but I think what I find, so it's like, right, we have a lot of people going out and buying diesel backup, which is obviously like, you know, people need, need power, right? Like as we've seen in way too many instances, like lack of power can lead to really bad things for people and can lead to death, right? Which is like, it is worth it to get a diesel backup. Like I totally get that. We have awesome companies like scale out there being like, all right, let's like, let's try to like, not, not just do diesel. Let's like try to do some other things. And then where I start getting like, okay, like how do we make this work is in those communities that are like in the forest, right? Because again, I'm not going to pretend to be a California expert, but like, I think we've all heard enough times that there's like part of the problem amongst many other things is like deeper and deeper build into forested areas that then you have these like lines that are running through these really big forest areas. It's very difficult. Like how do you build community level microgrids and like shared resources in those areas so that you either don't need that line or you have that line, but when you have public safety power shut off, it's like not a big deal because you have this other power there. And that line's really there as like backup for when you need it. And for me, like, that's the, I think the big thing that like people kind of talk about, but it's so complicated because like it gets into, you know, James isn't here, but I'll just like be both myself and James. Cause we fight about this all the time. Utility franchise rights. Um, <laughs> There's like question of like, is that something that utilities like you know, should PG&E be going out there and like allowed to, to like build or incentivize DERs getting built and like helping understand how that infrastructure connects there so that there is backup power? Is that something the private market should be handling? And like, we allow for certain instances where like, if you're in a public safety, like high public safety risk area, then you are like allowed to procure this like secondary backup, like that conversation and how DERs can solve that because I think ultimately for me I struggle with like individual backup is great but it's like inherently unequal um because it's going to people who can afford it and it's going to people who are credit worthy and it's going to people maybe who can get grants and so like I don't think it's the right I think it's the only it's the best short-term solution but I don't think it's the right solution um, and I would love to see a lot more like holistic discussion around that. And I know it does happen, right? Like after every, you know, New Jersey has 
<laughs> community microgrid programs. New York has community microgrid programs. Massachusetts does. California has a bunch. And like, how many of those have actually gotten built? <laughs> um, is I think zero, yeah. <laughs> and it's a really, really difficult thing to process because there's all these questions on like who pays, who maintains, like, is it something that the community gets? Or is like, if there's a school, like, should it be paid by all of the people, um, even if it, like all the people in that utility service territory because they could drive to the school and like have power and an outage. Like, how do you think about the community benefit? And, you know, this is something we talk about in our podcast a lot because I think we're all super interested in it and come at it from like very various angles. Um, but for me, like that's, that's like the, I don't want to say like the magic bullet, but like that's the solution that I think we like need to figure out. So I totally agree. Like, and I think there's a lot of interesting ways to think about this. Um, it gets particularly tricky, I think, with residential, right? So like we focus on commercial and industrial because it's kind of easy to say like the hospital needs its own power source when there's an outage, right? Or, you know, beyond There's some like too, equity though. like built in to a lot yeah, of those exactly, things because right? there's universal access. We've been working with places. a lot of water utilities, like the water treatment plant needs a good source of power, right? Or the pumping station. Um, but I even sort of downstream of that, like the grocery store needs power, right? Like that is a essential part of a community. Um, I mean, I know we're, I, I know we're in California right now and we'll stay there because I, I want to hear the rest of your point, Duncan, but like HEB has gotten so much love again in the past week from Texas for having power and like staying open during outages. And every time there's an outage in Texas, everyone's just like, there's always like the HEB promo. Yeah, this is like in my sales pitch now, which is just like the brand power of staying open through an outage is awesome. I've yet to convince anyone of that, but I think it's true. Um, what I was getting at though, right, is like, so there are like, I think quite a number of like single building microgrids that make sense even from the equity consideration, but your point is right, which is like, that doesn't cover everything we need to cover, right? And I think there's, really interesting emerging ideas about how to accomplish that um that um are kind of like run run the gamut of how this could work but i mean even a year ago sunrun released this white paper of how you could use customer cited der's you know single building you know rooftop solar and storage to power a whole feeder during an outage right and it's it's really cool because there's a bunch of work for the utility to do and then there's a bunch of work for the individual sources to do. Um, and I mean, I'm, I'm not a power engineer, so I'm not going to get too far into this because I'll probably just make a mistake. But essentially, right, the idea was like, if you have a block of homes on a feeder, you isolate the feeder, which means the utility has to have like cool stuff on that feeder to make that happen and like better, you know, better sensors and switches and stuff. So there's, there's kind of like things for the utility to play in this. And then... Um, rather than have all these homes self-isolate, now they're little communities isolated and you have all of these systems talk to each other and manage load. It's just a small grid, right? And the fact that the solar and storage is located on somebody's roof is kind of irrelevant, right? Um, some people will have it, some people won't, but they'd share the power, right? Just like that's how our grid works now. It's not as if, you know, New York City has all of its own generation. and No, we all share, right? Um, so I think that's what, one really interesting model. The other one then is the kind of like upstream microgrid, right? So 
you could have all of the generation and storage, um, you know, at the point that feeder is being isolated um, and then just feed it downstream. Um, and then, you know, you just have to figure out like what that thing's doing, you know, the 99% of the hour, other hours, like that's the whole thing with resilience. It's like, mm-hmm. how can I give people what they need, but like also have this be economically useful and like have people want to do it or like have the system, you know, the, the utility want to do it. Um, there's, I don't yeah. know. It, I agree with your main point, which is just like, this makes everybody's head explode. <laughs> like there's right. no, it's like, like really hard. There's no easy yeah. <laughs> answer, but it's also like kind of obvious that it's a good idea. Like the, like, well, the I, end. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think the best one, it, it's a little bit different, but just, um, and the big thing obviously in this case is the cost of energy is so high, but, uh, what they did in Australia kind of with, it was in partnership, uh, the virtual power plant kind of setup they did with a lot of homes by the utility just paying to put the actual Tesla Powerwall thing in someone's house and then kind of put those in conjunction to kind of help with a lot of the blackouts issues they were having. I think that that to me, once again, there's a huge economic factor, but then it does start to make it to make it a lot more approachable where the person themselves doesn't have to buy it and the utility is being able to kind of get the return on it and get that um, the one that who monitors it, but it, it's kind of that seamless experience where no one who has these things in their homes really realize where the energy is going. They just know they don't have blackouts and their costs have come uh, wildly down for their whole, uh, I guess, neighborhood for the most part. Yeah. I think I, that, that, that one in Vermont is really cool. Um, yeah. And that, that's kind of a similar model. I don't think it's the same scale, but it's exactly kind of the same idea. Yeah. It's, um, it's a different version of like, how can we take, customer cited resources, but make sure they have social value. And really what they're doing is making sure the day-to-day economics have social value, right? Because they're using those batteries to like reduce the system's peak load and discharge at the right times and stuff. And then the individual gets the backup um, because they are isolated like one building systems. Um, with the one in Vermont or yeah, with the, with the green mountain power one, like it, you have one of those Tesla batteries in your house that green mountain power gave you. Like it only provides backup to your home, but it provides economic benefits to everybody else during right. the rest of the year. So it, it's a different, it's like flipping the question on its head, right? Which is, yeah, um, we want social value out of these systems. We don't want to just have a bunch of like little atomic grids and nobody cares about each other, right? Right, but right, right. You right, can right. also spin it the other way, which is if people are going to spend money on their own resilience, how can we make sure that also provides benefits to everybody else during... I always say this, the 99% of the other hours of the year. Um, yeah. I think it's that's a cool model as well. Yeah. I, I might be mistaken. Maybe mm-hmm. the Australia one's that way too. I thought it was uh, a little bit different, but that that actually probably makes more sense that they did it that way. We, we might be referring to different things too. I, I yeah. might've just, just totally went off on a tangent there. <laughs> yeah, but, but you're right. It's, it makes everyone's heads explode trying to figure this out. But what yeah, were you gonna say, I, Colleen? Yeah, no, I was gonna say just like, just closing out on that idea. What I think is like interesting about both of those two is that yes, it's not like necessarily creating a, and maybe in the Australia one it is, and the Vermont one it's not necessarily creating like a community microgrid outage but it does make it a lot more accessible to people who couldn't have afforded it otherwise, because then they can derive additional value. And then for people who are like really wealthy and are like, I want control over my battery hundred percent, they don't have to participate in the program. Um, But it does open it up to more people. Like I think there's still a nominal enough fee that probably doesn't open up to everyone, but 
it's like getting better. So I think that's Duncan, a really, a really good point as well. And, and then we also have to like layer on like anytime we're talking about energy technology, we have to think about cost curves, right? Like we can't like mm-hmm. level set our ideas of how this works today. Cause like 100%. a year from now is different. Five years from now is really different. 10 years from now, like how cheap is storage going to be? I have no idea, but when, while watching the solar cost curve happen, I was wrong every single time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like pessimistic five years ago about solar, which was turned out to be the dumbest take ever. So I don't know. It's, and it's one more thing that makes this so hard to think through, which is like, you just can't really think about today. You have to think about like 10 years from now, if you want to really like create a good framework for how this stuff should should work. Mm-hmm. And you're completely right, because it kind of goes back to what you both said. No, none of this happens overnight. And I... I think, especially speaking of solar, I remember when I was doing, I was, we, we did both uh, large commercial, some utility, and, and then we had a smaller section that did residential. And like a good deal on a residential project would be like eight bucks a watt, which oh now God. is just, yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> and that was like, oh, eight, oh, nine. And nowadays you would just, you might, I mean, it's, it's so economically inefficient. Whereas now it's, I don't, I know it's at least under two bucks, but it's probably even lower than that for you, just even residential. I um, think resi still kind of tends to hit like high twos or threes even. Gotcha. Um, I mean, I think what's wild is right. Like the sunshot program, the DOE sunshot program was to get like hundred megawatt utility scale plants down to a dollar a watt. Right. Um, and that was achieved, I don't know, a few years ago. Um, you know, I just did a very small commercial solar installation so like 150 kilowatts in new jersey and it was a dollar 34 a watt right like so whatever people were thinking about at the doe which was amazing by the way and was like they achieved their goals about like what that would unlock like they were missing this whole other thing right because you just don't expect this to happen um so i don't know it's i feel like everybody in our industry myself included has been caught like time and time again underestimating like how technology actually changes everything we think about. And I, I think it's completely, what I'm most fascinated right now about is battery costs. Cause it's exact. it reminds me of exactly that with solar, but maybe a few years behind where it is just dropping so quickly that data you have from a year, maybe even 18 months ago is just not worth using because the prices, depending on what chemistry you're using and the general production of it have completely dropped even further. Uh, and I, I think that's where, especially with uh, grid backup systems, you really, if you're thinking five years ahead, yeah, you'll be fine. Cost effectiveness by the time you actually have something on the ground. So we've we've talked about COVID. We just discussed the fires. So let's try and get even more chronologically relevant and talk about what's happened over the last couple of weeks with Texas. What are you talking where, about? Yeah. What oh, there is a. Texas? Oh, there is this. Uh, this rodeo. I think that's, <laughs> oh, that's, what er, that's what ERCOT, ERCOT puts <laughs> oh on, right? Oh my They're, gosh. Yeah. Sorry, I just had this like very pre-COVID. I have a lot of friends in Houston and I love oh. rodeo. I, I I hope they're okay. Uh, I I mean they're they're doing okay. It is yeah. almost rodeo season. I or would have been, I guess, pre-COVID. So yeah, I can we just like pause for a second? I was on the phone. Let's. With from Texas yesterday who said that it was 80 degrees in Texas yesterday and like it was like what like that's (laughs) that's like so recently like you know I'm used to like 
temperature fluctuations, but not like 80 degrees in a week. I, I had something similar happen where I don't know if his cell towers or something or whatever happened, but I have a good friend who lives down in Austin and I thought I'd sent a text and then I was like, oh my God, I guess it didn't go through. And so a few days later, I goes by when I finally realized it. So I send it. And then he kind of sent to me like, yeah, it's not great. But then he takes a photo outside and it was the same deal. I think it was like 72 out. And I'm just like, wait, what the hell? <laughs> where you see such a massive swing and just like to be off by a few days where it has such a large impact on everything they're doing. But then boom, they're still, they might not still have water and some of these other things that are critical infrastructure, but the actual storm, it was, you wouldn't even tell, could tell it was even there. We should probably back up and describe what the storm was since we're talking about the aftermath. <laughs> okay. I'll, well, who, who do you want me to do that? Do you want to, it sounds like Duncan, I'll let you seem to volunteer. I, I Yeah. I was like, that sounded whoops. like a, a volunteering. Okay. <laughs> oh, so, <laughs> that's not what I meant. Uh, no, I'll, I'll go for it. So I mean, <laughs> right. Basically, um, you know, a historic, cold front came through much of the US basically if you imagine an inverted triangle that is you know sort of pointing down to Texas and covers much of the upper midwest um you know the the polar vortex i guess collapsed whatever that means i don't know exactly but it let let a bunch of arctic air flow flow south um and i've been using this as sort of like the benchmark for how crazy this was um you know, there's, if you design HVAC systems, you have to understand what's the hottest temperature this is going to be exposed to and what's the coldest temperature this is going to be exposed to, because that's how you size how much AC you need and how much heat you need. Um, the, the manual that tells you what this weather data is, um, uh, if you looked at the low in Dallas, which um, at least the one day I was looking at it was five degrees, that's 25 degrees less than the most conservative low that the manual tells you to consider, right? And that's a that's based on a 50-year data set with a 99.6% confidence. So like five degrees was just like considered so improbable, it wasn't even worth thinking about. And it happened, right? Um, and so essentially this, you know, stressed the grid massively, right? First, First, it was just an economic impact. So I remember the first couple of days of this, you know, everyone on energy Twitter was like, oh my God, prices are so high, right? Um, so the price of electricity went up to its regulated cap of $9,000 per megawatt hour. That's $9 a kilowatt hour. You know, typically in Texas, power is like nine cents a kilowatt hour, you know, crazy stuff, 100x the, the normal price. Um, and, you know, for a long time, that was just sort of an economic issue. Uh, basically, the people who sell power to customers sell it at fixed rates with locked in contracts for the most part. So those those retailers of power were, you know, getting crunched because they had to cover their contracts in the spot market if they weren't hedged enough. There's going to be a bunch of bankruptcies from this. Uh, but then there are also a handful of people on the real, real time rate who got like $13,000 electricity bills for like six days, like really, really crazy stuff. Um, but then it escalated beyond just an economic issue and, you know, became like a crazy health and safety issue because um, the, the pipelines and the gas power plants and even the gas wells themselves started freezing up. Um, and so we Which is deliver. just wild to think about. 
Yeah, Texas, the land of gas, yeah. right? There's so much damn gas in that state that they just flare it because there's no way to get it to market. And they couldn't get enough gas within the state to run power plants, right? Um, and uh, so they had to start you know, issuing rolling blackouts to at least keep some of the system up. And now it's actually been understood that they were minutes away from a total system failure where the entire Texas grid would have shut down. And it can be really hard to start a grid back up. To black start a grid, you have to like isolate a section of it that has a generator, bring up that section, do another section, sync them together, and then do that like 50 times, right? It can take like weeks to black start a grid. And that's that that's what I'd heard was they were minutes away from their grid being out for at least weeks, maybe even months. So let's, yeah. in case anyone hasn't heard what happened, let's take a step back. Uh, I think probably the biggest thing, there's two elements to this that really explains this if obviously the weather component, but the phenomenon with this is the fact that Texas is Texas. And if anyone knows how the grid looks, you really have the West interconnection grid, the East interconnection grid, and it goes down the middle of the country. And then randomly you have Texas and that kind of falls into its own, uh, its own grid. So traditionally they haven't had to deal with a lot of these issues and there's, the reasons for that partially was so they could kind of get around some FERC regulation by doing their own thing. And then I believe it was 2001, 2003, where they decided to deregulate some of their utility markets, which I thought was an, it's not, it's an interesting concept. And I think the best analogy I've been able to uh, describe it to is like what you experience with telecom. If you have Verizon or, or I mean, um, like T-Mobile or Sprint, they don't actually own the cell towers. They're usually renting space and cell capacity from AT&T and Verizon at their providers. And that's essentially what this deregulation kind of allowed for is for a lot of these utilities to kind of come in and not always have the infrastructure to kind of upkeep, but they could essentially sell to the end user. And through that, you kind of started having a lot of really unique things happen in between not properly weatherizing the wind turbines, the natural gas plants, and all these things. And it really did kind of create a perfect storm. I don't know if there's any other kind of back uh, backstory for what has happened that either of you want to kind of add to that you thought was really interesting. But I think that those, to me, hit a lot of the highlights that were just really unique about the situation and is going to be a long discussion of how they move forward. Yeah, I think the I think the reason for the power plants not being um, winterized is like a little bit less of the deregulation of Texas and a little bit more in that a lot of I mean I think a lot of power plants went through deregulation and weren't winterized um, and then in the Northeast I and Duncan fact check me here but I believe that there were basically similar kind of issues at some point and then the and then it was sort of like if you want to participate in the capacity market and be considered like a firm and reliable resource you you must winterize your plant um and texas doesn't have capacity markets so it doesn't really have that same requirement uh they could have that requirement obviously in other ways you don't need a capacity market to mandate winterization to participate in a grid um right but it is sort of the way that it happens in a lot of other markets today well, I think that was actually a, a better way to articulate it um, because 
the weatherization thing, I think what was unique about that really comes out of what they saw, I believe, happened in 2011, where something similar did happen before. And that, that was supposed to be the wake up call um, to hopefully address some of these issues. And unfortunately, that just never happened. I mean, I'll, I'll give my take here, which is like, I think it's all about what we assume the frequency of extreme weather is going to be, right? Because whether you're an energy market or capacity market or, you know, to what extent the market's deregulated or not, and like, I don't know, there's a lot of details there. I think generally, though, whoever owns and operates the plant, whether it's an old school vertically integrated utility or, you know, a fully independent power producer, what they want to know is if I'm going to spend money to upgrade this plant, you know, when when is that going to pay off? Like, when, when am I going to need that, Right. Um, and in the Texas construct, what that means is like, when are prices going to go to $9,000 a megawatt hour again because of a cold front? And if I don't weatherize, I'm not going to be able to capture that. And I mean, as someone who develops financed projects of a very different kind, but it's like a similar process, like if I said one of these might happen in the next 25 years, I would not get approval to include that cost. If I said one of these might happen in the next 10 years, I'd be very, very lucky to get approval to include that cost, even if it's like a huge payout. Um, if I said one of these might happen in the next five years, like now we're starting to talk, right? Um, I, you know, I don't know specifically whether this Texas cold front like was statistically normal or not. Like, I don't know, a lot of stuff to get into there, but I do think what we know is more extreme weather is probably going to happen with more frequency, right? And how do we actually quantify that and think about that is like a huge lever on how we build our infrastructure, regardless of who owns it and pays for it. Um, because, you know, just like the, the sort of like HVAC design guidebook I was talking about, they, the most conservative thing they say is we look at this data set and then we cover 99.6 of the hours in the data set. Like, one, that's an arbitrary choice. Should that be 99.9? .9? Should that be 85? Like, who knows? And two, like, the data's wrong, right? The historical data is not representative of where we are anymore. So I, my view on this is, like, that's what this is about. I think an easy fix will probably be just mandating plants winterize. But, like, we're going to see this happen with all sorts of stuff, right? Uh, in L.A. County, in the summer, it hit 120 degrees, which is just the highest it ever hit right? Sorry, 121. Um, and a lot of power systems and HVAC systems and everything else wasn't prepared for that. Um, we're going to see floodplains change and, you know, maybe critical infrastructure is in what are the new floodplains? Like all this stuff is changing and we don't really have like standard practices for assuming what forward looking weather is going to be. We've only been able yeah. to look backward. Um, so for, yeah. for me, not to kind of blow this topic up, but for me, like that is the crazy thing in this. It's like, there's probably a solution to the Texas problem that can just be implemented. And I'm sure ERCOT's going to figure that out. But like over the next 40, 50 years, like stuff like this is going to keep happening. And like, we have to figure out how we deal with this across a variety of situations. That's my concern. Right. And like, how do you anticipate what those risks are now right it reminds me like post sandy um right. you know sandy had so many people had generators on the ground floor and then they all flooded and everyone was like oh wait maybe they shouldn't be on the ground floor because 
we could they could flood but it's like no one had ever thought about it before because that was never the issue before um and suddenly you're you know you're faced with something and obviously right like texas i think there's there's some questions of whether like nobody had seen it before because there was like some cold related outages in the 90s and then in 2011 and then in 2021 but there is still this question of like what is the frequency and like what is that economic drive and so um and that's gonna vary you know wildly (laughs) um in terms of what people think the value is and like what people think you know i think especially again i'm not gonna like try to speak to the culture of texas but like you know regulation solves that really easily it probably will in this case because there's enough enough of a big issue but it could also not (laughs) and there's like a clear thing to fix here right right and it's like not crazy expensive right like what like weatherizing a plant is i I mean i i know nothing about the economics but from my understanding it's not like it's something you wouldn't pay for if you didn't think you needed it but it's not gonna like make all these places go bankrupt um and the potential economically you know attractive power plants in the northeast exactly weatherize it's fine (laughs) like yeah yeah um i do think there's one crazy thing though which is the gas supply was disrupted too so even if you weatherize the plant does can you get gas to it um this is also something we face in the northeast and our solution is have the plant be dual fuel, have a massive oil tank next to it. And every winter, Massachusetts, Massachusetts fires up its oil turbines, right? Uh, or switches to the fuel to them because gas becomes scarce when people on the coldest days are heating with it, which is exactly what happened in Texas. So like, not an awesome outcome, right? Like yeah. burning fuel and oil, fuel oil and peaker plants. But like, that could also be what weatherizing means. Um, right. Or winterizing, sorry. Uh, so I, I think like that's like a bigger thing. Um, but if it's just kind of like make sure the instrumentation and like pressure sensors and stuff can deal with the cold, like I think they should probably just mandate it and get it over with. Yeah, for sure. Well, what what are your thoughts about just kind of ERCOT and Texas being separate from the other interconnections? Is that do you think that maybe what part of this regulation includes is to make it easier for in some sort of situation moving forward that it becomes part of the other the grid so it allow for that or do you think that's too far out anytime soon i <laughs> i i mean and that's, I that's think, fine i'm just i'm just curious yeah from your, your no perspective. i i think for for two reasons i mean one i think is it would be bringing in fe- potential like more federal oversight um but i think also like in this particular instance the specific neighboring areas weren't doing that great either um you know they were also having like rolling outages and it wasn't nearly as dire of a situation as texas was in but there wasn't a lot my understanding is there wasn't necessarily like a lot of help readily available now maybe if like in the future you know we have like stronger cross-grid interconnection texas will want to reconsider that when we have like you know high voltage transmission like crossing the country and everything's like great and wonderful maybe texas will be like oh that looks cool but right now i think they're like wouldn't have really helped us we don't really want to deal with federal things like we'll fix what we need to fix and we'll just deal with it and part of the reason i bring it up it's definitely a one-off is people are using el paso right now as kind of the example that they were able to stay up 
even it's not obviously the largest Texas city, but they had blackouts, but they were only usually from what I've been told minutes to hours versus having such they were a severe... actual rolling blackouts right right like, right ERCOT said they were doing rolling blackouts but then they just didn't have the power to unroll people exactly <laughs> um, which i don't think is the proper term for that but <laughs> i think i think that is in itself is a really interesting question to ask which is like of course how do we prevent these issues two when they occur how do we respond to them better Right. Um, and I think, yeah, the rolling blackouts topic is interesting. Like ideally, like there's an optimal way to institute rolling blackouts that minimizes harm to people, you know, that relies on like the law of large numbers and like spreads out the burden, you know, um, that is done maybe with a high um, sort of like resolution geographically and also temporally. So, you know, my block can lose power for an hour, but then it rotates to the next block, right? And all this stuff would be enabled, um, you know, if if utilities could, you know, invest in more sort of like people call this like situational awareness and sensors and all sorts of stuff. I think that's a really important discussion because right now the way it works is just like we have a couple of feeders we prioritize because there's like a hospital here and a, this thing there. And like, if you're on that feeder, you're lucky. You're not losing power. Everyone else is for like two days, right? It's... I think that's, I, I'm very interested in that conversation. Blackouts are going to happen again. And yeah, I would love to empower utilities to like, you know, do it in a really good way. Right. But I think, but what I have read on Texas is that they were planning on rotating people more, but they just couldn't undo it because they lost too much generation. So I, I think like part of the miscommunication was they said, we're going to have to be rolling blackouts and then so much generation was shed that they were just like we just can't bring these people back the and there's like, like no growing. and then all yeah. you all you can serve then are like the absolutely critical areas yeah. and that's why like the areas around hospitals stayed open i think in another situation where they hadn't lost quite as much generation just a little bit of generation you would have seen more rolling situation totally but totally yeah yeah what i, I, I even think meant is, like relative to how it works today like yeah you could even yeah more, right like, even more granular more surgical kind of um, but what, yeah, it's a great point. They were like in a tremendously difficult situation and even normal rolling blackouts weren't really possible. Yeah. And I think what, like one question I have that I haven't seen discussed a lot is like, had we, had there been a lower demand in the days leading up to the outages through like promotion of cold climate heat pumps instead of electric resistance heating? Um, or better, better weatherization of like homes and businesses. What, like, how might that have like helped reduce some of the outages themselves, right? From these plants that had to like gear up super fast and then go to like a hundred percent and then just like broke down. <laughs> um, like, are there ways to think about, like, it became very much a supply side issue, but if you can mitigate some of the demand, can you like, could you have reduced some of that impact? Totally. I think that's a great question, right? And it, I think electrification plays in here too, right? Because like, I don't know the exact number, but like half of homes are heated with gas and half of homes have like electric heat in Texas, which is, which is unique, right? In the Northeast here, everybody's gas basically, or oil. Um, you know, there was, 
a big reason plants couldn't get gas is because everybody was burning gas in their houses. Um, you could say, well, electrification would have worsened the problem because it would have made more electric demand. But if it was with efficient cold climate heat pumps, it might have actually been like a net gain, right? Less gas demand in homes lets the plants run powering efficient heat pumps. Like all of that could have worked out better. Plus to your point, yeah, like a little bit of a little bit more insulation, a bit, a little bit of air sealing. Um, and I think you could imagine a system that didn't end up in such a severe situation. Uh, not to mention then if you do lose power, um, if you have a well-insulated tight house, like it retains its temperature for like a day. Like you're, you're like, you have a, like essentially a thermal battery. Um, exactly. And you'd be in a much better shit. You wouldn't be like, I don't know. You heard some like really, really uh, sad stories about like people burning furniture to stay warm. And like, there's like a young guy who like was like burning hand sanitizer to try to like stay warm in his living room, like really terrible stuff. Right. And I think winterizing homes is like, <laughs> just like previous, like not only is it good that 99% of the rest of the time, just cause it reduces energy loads and all that. But like if people lose power, like it's a much better situation. Um, anyway, I think that's a super interesting topic, Colleen, um, the, the demand side of this. So moving forward, I mean, <laughs> Now that we've kind of looked at that, where, I mean, I guess it'd be interesting to hear both of your thoughts. I mean, I realize we're kind of coming up on an hour here, but both of your thoughts on which technology in this space do you find the most interesting? Or like, do you think could hold like really the most immediate potential? I, I think that the heat pump comment you made is is incredibly insightful and completely accurate. I love heat pumps. <laughs> I've had them on two houses um, and my work with electric vehicles, they are game changers. And so like the more that technology can be used, I am all for it. Uh, but I, I just be curious to talk to both of you just kind of given the realms that you, uh, the spheres that you work in, what you see as kind of like technologies that you're most excited about kind of on the horizon that I think will have a great impact. I think we're both just thinking, not because we don't have thoughts, but there's like, there's, there's so many a, thoughts. A big question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like just hitting us. I was hard trying to make it end. a softball. I didn't expect I mean, yeah. <laughs> but it, I mean, there I are guess so many exciting technologies. There yeah. are a lot of exciting technologies. I guess, you know, I think. I feel like this is a comment James had made before of like, I'm just excited about a ton of DERs getting on the system. And so then the technology that I'm that excited about is like software that can optimize those. Because I, I think that like, we're going to need all types of DERs. We're going to need things like storage that can both take in and export power. We're going to need things that can be generators. We're going to need things that can just like be flexible load, right? And like, man, you know, like manage EV charging. But ultimately, like those things are only really helpful if we have a good way of controlling them and a good way of them speaking to each other. And like, that's the technology that there's a lot of different solutions for now. But I don't feel like that's like where I want to see the most development go. Because um, that to me still feels like the missing link. Like we haven't really like found the true solution of how everything speaks to each other. 
think that's a cool answer. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna take the other side of that one. <laughs> um, I personally, even though I don't work with them that much, I think EVs are the most like revolutionary technology in the power system and the ener energy system broadly. Right? Not only do they just massively change uh, transportation, you know, moving from oil to electricity, that's like a huge shift. And there's a, all these interesting transportation specific benefits to that. But I think EVs like become the more most important factor in the power grid as well, right? Um, not only do, are they a massive load, uh, you imagine just like your house, uh, once you get an EV, like that's really the only load that matters anymore. Maybe your heat pump in the winter as well. But like, that's, that's what you're doing. You're charging your car. Like the rest is kind of like, eh, interesting. Um, and like, it just connects to everything, right? I think in the not so distant future, folks with EVs in Texas during an outage are going to be using their EVs as backup generators. Um, I think there's a really good chance that EV OEMs reach into the rest of the home energy ecosystem, um, maybe providing, um, you know, uh, like third party, like rate plans that optimize EV charging and give you a better, better rate. I think that's very likely, right? Cause this thing just sits in your garage 10 hours a day. You could charge it any time in those 10 hours. Um, I like, I think there's just all these ways in which like the interesting activity in the power system organizes itself around the emergence of EVs, not to mention also like the only thing that's actually making stationary storage attractive from an economic perspective is that we're building out a ton of storage manufacturing capacity for EVs. So like that is very related in itself too, right? Like my projects Absolutely. that have stationary storage are just like riding the EV momentum basically. And uh, so, so that, that would be my view. I think there's just like so much to happen there. Um, not to mention also like the type of work Colleen does, right? Which is thinking about like, we also have like a lot of infrastructure to build to, to charge and manage EVs. And like, it's like, what's really cool about it beyond it being a lot is that like, it's a blank slate, right? Like for most of our loads on the grid, we're like working with existing stuff, right? You have this hundred year old building with like 75 year old switch gear in the basement. And you're like, well, throw out whatever the best solution is. Like, what can I fit into this? Right. If you're electrifying a municipal bus fleet, right? It's a parking lot. There's nothing on it. Like just buses park there. Right. But like now it has to become a sophisticated power distribution center. And right. like you can do whatever you want. Right. Cause there's no power in that parking lot other than for some street lights. Right. You build it from the ground up. And I think that's so exciting. Um, because like you can do everything really right. You know, you could have like all this awesome software and batteries to back it up and carport solar and like all this cool stuff because like you're not working with like you know these strange vestigial infrastructures you're you're just starting over um so anyway that's my long-winded answer i think like the intersection of evs and the power sector is like probably the coolest place to be right now well that's great to hear because that's what this podcast is about so shameless plug oh, really? <laughs> uh but no I, it's funny because actually that i was kind of thinking the question to myself and that was honestly i was going back and forth between both your answers um because 
if I had to like, what would be the thing that I think can have the greatest impact to everyone right now is software and just better use of what we have today. Uh, I'm, I, I think we've even mentioned a few times where we're, we're talking about how utilities have to make the decisions on which feeders and different things to keep up. And it's obviously you have to work with the system you have, but it's, it's still just so crazy that it's gone to a point where it's still kind of it's so analog still and so many Edison would of, recognize the grid right? and that's exactly right. that's my favorite analogy yeah um yeah the if alex the if anyone hasn't heard it before it's if alexander graham bell came today he would never recognize what a phone is but if edison somehow made it to today he could pretty quickly figure out where the outlets are how the electrical system works here because nothing's really changed um but then completely to your point on EVs, I, I think um, there's just so much to unlock there. I'm I'm probably not as bullish on the V to G thing. I'm, I want to see that happen. The question just becomes, um, and the only reason I'm not bullish on it, not because I believe in it, it's the issues for the actual automotive OEMs as far as the warranty um, and how all of that works out. I Can think I offer a caveat to my statement? Oh, please do. So I'm bullish on V to H, not V to G, right? So or, V to H, like V to house, right? Like backup, right? To, and like, that's, that's, I think, I think OEMs yeah. are going to realize that's super valuable. It just could be like, we're going to figure out the warranty stuff. Cause this is going to happen like once in a while. It doesn't really matter. Yeah. V to G. I agree. I don't know how you get through those barriers. I think that's really tough. And, and I think that's, I, I think we're perfectly aligned there um, because we are seeing OEMs talk about moving the warranties from miles to cycles on a battery, which in that case makes sense and those one off. Um, but I think where we'd actually see the VG would, uh, V to G would be around uh, fleet, where you do have a bunch of electric buses that are just kind of, uh, when they're parked there, you have a tremendous potential for a large battery that if you're able to kind of take advantage of that more effectively, I think for a city and municipality, that's where we're going to see it first. Um, Y'all, well, I so, hate but, to do this, but yeah, I was gonna say we have to, we're gonna have to yeah. wrap wrap this up. <laughs> now, and I, I appreciate it. It's easy for me being on the West Coast, so I, I do want to say uh, thank you for having both of you on. But before we hop off, I would just like to, uh, if people are interested in learning more about what either of you do, and especially the DER Task Force, where can they find out more and find the podcast and everything that uh, your team's doing? Totally. So. Easiest place to find all of it is drtaskforce.com. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter, uh, dr underscore task underscore force. Yep, that's that's the place to go. Um, I don't know. We're we're also on like all the major podcasts. We're everywhere. Players. I don't know. Just search. For us. <laughs> I don't know how it works. <laughs> There's a podcast here there. Well, Colleen and Duncan, I just want to say once again, this has been great. Thank you so much. I know I've learned a lot. I've been, I, I think honestly, that's what I was so excited to have both of you on was when I've listened to your podcast, listen to uh, both of you, or at least I know Duncan, you've been on some of those uh, clubhouse things that we happen to be in the same uh, room on. I was just blown away how quickly you guys were just laying down the facts and really uh, being pretty articulate because that's a whole podcast unto itself is the world of clubhouse, good and bad. Um, but when you find those sources of people who know their stuff, it, it's pretty amazing. So I just want to say thanks to both of you again. If you haven't listened to it, listen to the DR Task Force and uh, look forward to speaking to both of you soon. Thanks for being on.
Thanks, Chase. This is great. Yeah, likewise. Thanks, Chase. This was a good time. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to visit our website, connectingthegrid.com. There you can listen to our podcasts, contact us about sponsorship, or even be a guest on Grid Connections. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a positive rating on your favorite podcast or video streaming service. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out a lot too. Thank you again, and I look forward to us learning more together soon.